This summer, we, um, as a family, we watched the old Aladdin. And then my family, without me, the, Mary Clark took our older kids to go see the new Aladdin. Um, lots of Aladdin this summer. And one of the things that's really fun about the Aladdin movie is the lamp. Just this, this, this idea that there's this thing that they find, right, and that you rub it and a genie comes out and he gives you three wishes. And, um, and I think the way that Aladdin, the, the movie tells the story, is really honest, right? That you've got, you've, you have this, especially at the end. Is this a spoiler for anyone? You need to go see Aladdin if you haven't seen it. <laughs> especially at the end, you have Jafar and Aladdin both contrasted the way that they're using the lamp and what, what they're getting. And um, it, it offers us a choice, right? You see both in Jafar and Aladdin, you're offered this, this moral choice where Jafar is using the wishes for himself and he sees power as fundamentally about domination, right? Power for him is fundamentally about domination. It's about getting as much power as possible so that he can dominate others. Um, Power in the form of competition and domination. Like in order for me to win, everyone else must lose. And then Aladdin, who at the end you see that he uses the, his wish, I won't give it away. He uses his wish for someone else. Um, that this, this seeing power as creative, the opportunity to actually use power for the sake of someone else, that it's generative, it gives life to someone else. Um, so I just want to have that idea as we get started tonight. So this semester, if you've been with us, you know this, if you're new, what we've been doing this time is we've been looking at questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. And so in the Gospels, which are the, the four books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus's life, um, he asks a number of questions. And Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God himself, come in flesh to the world. And it's, it's fascinating that God, the way that the Bible tells the story, that when God comes to earth, he doesn't just tell everyone what to do, but he actually enters into, um, enters into people's lives and asks them questions. Um, right? He who knows, knows all things could just speak, but instead he, he chooses to ask questions. And so tonight's question from Jesus is, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Similar question to the genie. Not a genie in a bottle, but a similar question. What do you want me to do for you? So we're going to read from Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. It's printed on your bulletin. It's also on the screen. Um, this is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were two of Jesus' disciples, they came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they they said to him, We are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the passage immediately before this, Jesus 
has a conversation with his disciples where he tells them that he's going to die. He, he has this, um, the third time he does this in Mark's gospel where he predicts his death, his crucifixion, his suffering. Um, and then Jesus is with his disciples and they're walking and then James and John run to Jesus and have this conversation. And if you pay attention to Jesus' life, you see that his, he's surrounded by these concentric circles of people. The furthest out in the largest group are the crowds, that as Jesus teaches and he heals and he feeds people, he's often surrounded by the crowds, which are this, this large crowd, large group of people who are observing him, who, who want to be near to him. Um, and then a little bit closer in, there's a group of about 70 that the gospel records, the gospels record of about 70 people who are committed to following Jesus. They're, they're called disciples in, in one place, and they're this larger group of people. And then closer in, you have the 12, the 12 disciples who's, who are actually named by name in the gospels. Um, and they're Jesus's closest friends, and the, he calls them to himself. And then even within those 12, you have the three who are Jesus' closest friends. You could say they're his inner circle. You've got James and John and Peter. But in this passage, all we see is James and John, um, two of the three who leave not only the other nine behind, but they leave behind their close friend and confidant, John, and they come as brothers and they approach Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to give us whatever we ask of you. This is a pretty bold move, right? To say to somebody in authority, we want you to give me Give us whatever we say. Um, hey, I'm about, I want you to say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you. I mean, imagine, imagine walking into President's Hatch's, President Hatch's office and saying this. Like scheduling with his, with his secretary, right? Because y'all are, like, he'll meet with everyone. And so you go in and you say, Dr. Hatch, um, I want you to give me whatever I ask of you. Right? That could easily be interpreted as a threat. Um, uh, and it's funny because that question actually... Or that statement reminds me a lot of my children. Like children at Christmas and birthdays, right? They have, you guys do this, right? They had lists. Like I want everything exactly as it is. I want you to give it to me. And Mary Clark and I, um, we, you know, we give them gifts, but not always, you know, to their exact specifications. But look at Jesus' response here. He's not angry. He doesn't, he's not afraid. But he responds with love and with this invitation to them, this question. What do you want me to do for you? And we'll come back to this, um, but I want to take a minute with it right now. Similar to the question we talked about our first week together this semester, when Jesus asks, what are you seeking or what do you want? This question is similar, but it's a little more pointed because it's a little more personal because he says, what do you want me to do for you? I had lunch with a student today and I asked him this question and his response, response was perhaps what most of our responses would be, which is honest. I don't know. Like, I don't know what I want you to do for me. I mean, how would you respond to Jesus's question? What do you want me to do for you? How would you respond to that? Hold on to that thought. Um, Let's look at how James and John answer him. James and John say, when you enter your glory, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. Well, what are they talking about here? To give a little context, this is taking place in the first century in Palestine under Roman rule. And the Hebrew scriptures, which is the the Old Testament of the Bible, are full of these promises of this great day when God will send someone to come and save his people. That there's this promise of someone who is of the line of David will come and sit on the throne of David forever. And he will reign and he will liberate um, Israel from the Roman oppressors. And their expectation is that he would be not just a religious ruler, but a political ruler. 
Religious, of course, yes, but political as well. That this Messiah, this promised one would come and would, would liberate them, would free them from their oppressors, that Israel could be free and full of its glory again. So when James and John ask Jesus this, when they say, hey, we want to sit at your right and left hand in glory, um, they're thinking, okay, we think that Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he's headed to his glory, that he's going to restore the throne to Israel. He's going to overthrow the Romans. And they're thinking, we don't want to miss out on getting our share of this. Like we want in, right? This is, think um, military coup takeover. You want to be close to the guy who's throwing stuff over so when he establishes his new government, you're on in on the inside. Like that's what they're thinking. When Jesus takes over, we want to be on the inside so we can get on the right and the left hand. And in doing this, they leave the other nine disciples out, right? They leave the other 10 disciples out. Even Peter, like the person who Jesus includes in their inner circle, excludes him and say, um, I don't care about them. I want to be in the inner circle when you come into your glory. And the way that they're relating to Jesus here is this thing that operates in all of our hearts. And it's something that people refer to as a zero-sum game. So zero sum is this idea that you see life as the only way for me to succeed is for you to fail. Zero sum means that if I'm going to go plus one, you have to go negative one. I can only gain if you lose. And this is fundamentally a scarcity worldview. There's only so many resources to be given out. Therefore, for me to have one, you have one less. For me to win, you have to lose. I mean, y'all know what this is like. Like this is when you, the syllabus day in your class and the professor says only 10% of the class will get A's right? What does that do to the classroom? Do you all have professors that do that? Yeah, maybe. Like that creates competition in the classroom because, well, I now have to compete against everyone else to see if I can get an A. And this is what happens with Rush, right? There's only so many bids that can get, be given out. So in order for one person to get in, somebody else has to be left out. This is a zero-sum game. And underneath this is a foundational assumption about how the world works, there's a, a, there's a foundational assumption underneath this. Um, in a book written by a guy named Andy Crouch, he says that no one has expressed this view of power more influentially than Friedrich Nietzsche. So Nietzsche was a German philosopher and writer, and in his vision of life, he says that every human is on a quest for omnipotence. Every human is trying to be the master of everything. Um, maybe you read Bonfire of the Vanities in high school. It's like this character, Sherman McCoy in Bonfire of the Vanities, who is on the quest to become the master of the universe. And according to Nietzsche, all of us want to win, to alone be victorious, to be at the top of the pyramid. And the only problem is everybody else, that everybody else is engaged in the exact same quest. So we see this, um, we see this in Western movies, like the idea that there's two cowboys who walk into a old western town together and one of them says there's not room of us room in the town for both of us and so they have a gunfight and then one guy wins the other guy's dead right um this is the underlying framework of hunger games the idea that when you strip away the trappings of civilization that underneath you will discover raw primal conflict like that there's this underneath everything that we've built there's this this conflict um, this competition that everyone feels to occupy space. This is zero-sum game. In order for me to win, you have to lose. And this is what James and John are saying to Jesus. We want glory. We want in. And we don't care what happens to the other ten disciples. And then Jesus and James and John have this interesting back and forth. Jesus asks them, says, are you able to drink the, 
Drink from the cup that I will drink, and will you be able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving these images, this cup and this baptism. And the cup conveys Jesus' impending suffering and death that God has ordained. He's saying, I'm going to the cross to die. I'm not simply choosing one, cup, one path among many, Jesus is saying, but he's completing the mission that he was sent on earth to accomplish. And this idea of drinking the cup is that Jesus must drink the cup of wrath, um, God's wrath on human sin. And then this image of baptism is he's saying that Jesus is expressing solidarity with humans, like that he is in the same boat as us, that he is expressing solidarity with sinners, his willingness to bear our judgment before God. And so in using these images, Jesus is saying that my mission in life is to give my life for the life of the world. And to take the full punishment that sin deserves so that I can give life to all who come to me. And then Jesus says to James and John, he says, can you all do this? And they should reply, no way. Like they would be familiar with these images and they'd say, no way. There's no way we can do this. But what do they say? And so they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Give us the glory. We can do that. Um, Either they don't understand or they don't care to understand. And then Jesus responds. He says, yes, you will have a cup and a baptism And what he's saying is that their lives, I mean, they ended up being martyrs, the two of them, that their lives will participate in in Jesus' life, that as they're attached to him, they will suffer um, as well. But what Jesus is saying here to them is directly against this zero-sum game. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, the way up is down. The way that you gain is by losing. Domination, winner-take-all, is not the truest thing about the universe. The zero-sum game is a lie. And while this conversation is going on, the other ten disciples begin to pick up on it, and they get really upset because they see that James and John are first. They wish that they'd been there in order they wish they'd had the audacity to approach Jesus and ask for the seats of honor and glory. And here Jesus summons the twelve to himself, and then he gives them a lesson on how power works in the kingdom. He says that the zero-sum game is a lie. Um, So the way the Bible tells the story is that God created all things, and then after day after day of creation, he brought things into being that were not. And then at the pinnacle of his creation, he placed image bearers, male and female in his image, in the abundance of his creation. And he said, now it's your turn. Imitate me as a creator. And then into that garden, somehow a serpent came in, and what he said to the woman, he said, I see that God has placed a limit on you that you're not allowed to touch that and you're not allowed to eat from that tree. And then the woman responded, yeah, we're not even allowed to touch it, which God didn't actually say. And the serpent said, do you know why? It's because God is in the zero-sum game. The serpent lied and said, God knows that if you eat that tree, you will be like God. And the serpent says this as if it's a bad thing, as if it's something God is afraid of, as if God is afraid of competition. So the serpent is like, God knows if you eat it, he's going to have competition. You'll be just like him. And the woman responds, well, you know, the interesting thing, the interesting thing here is that they are already like God, right? God makes them in his image. They already like him. Um, This is something that, there's something in a way that they should want. But what she hears, what the man hears, is that human beings and human beings have heard ever since then is that somehow God is in the zero-sum business. That the only way for you to gain is for you to go get it yourself. The only way that you're going to succeed in life, the only way that you are going to achieve that thing you want is for everybody else to lose. 
And it's that double lie of the serpent, the lie that tells you that God is not to be trusted because he does not love me. And we respond by saying, okay, if I'm, I'm going to be who I'm supposed to be, then I'm going to have to disobey God and dominate others. And it's a lie. It's absolutely a lie. Because for the whole rest of the Bible, God never responds this way. He is not in this game. He's not in the competitive game. He's not about domination. We see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things on the cross, where Jesus ultimately submits himself entirely to his creation. Instead of exerting power, instead of dominating, he himself is dominated. He submits himself out of love. And this is what Jesus is saying here, right? That he says he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the heart of the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, that God has laid down his life for you so that you may have life in him. And it's the exact opposite of the zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game that as he gives his life, it actually creates life. He gave his life to give you life. So a question that you must ask yourself is what is the true story of the world? Is the world finally a story about competition and domination? Or is the world a story about love, about other-centered, self-giving, life-generating love? And one of these stories has to be right. If the true story of the world is fundamentally a story of power, and the world is a zero-sum game, then Christianity and the Bible are false, and all who worship Jesus are fools. But if the story of the universe is fundamentally a story of love, and if love is most fully and beautifully and truthfully expressed in other-centered, self-giving love, then the world is in fact not a zero-sum game, and zero-sum power will not win. And Jesus gives us the proof in himself that on the cross, it's there where Jesus took the posture of a servant, took the posture of a slave. It's there that he laid down his life for you. It's there that he drank the cup of God's wrath that you deserve. It's there that he was baptized in the waters of judgment that we deserve so that in his resurrection, he can give us real life, full, eternal life, life with God. So what, is this, what does this look like on the ground? What does it look like to respond to Jesus from this passage? Um, I heard a story a couple years ago about a pastor uh, named Joe Novenson, who is the pastor of Lookout Mountain, Look Mountain Prez in, um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he tells a story of what it looks like to stop playing the zero-sum game and to start taking the posture of servants with others. He said that one time he was um, in India on a missions trip and he was preaching in several churches there, and his guide was a man named P.T. Chandra Pila. And Chanda, as Joe describes him, he said he was as if Mother Teresa and John Calvin had a baby, and the baby was an evangelical Protestant reformed child. It would be this Indian man, Chanda. And so he said that Chanda is the vicar of, and that's a funny image, um, the vicar of St. Thomas Evangelical Free Church. He said he owns maybe four things. He's a poor man but he had a profound passion for the gospel. And Joe tells the story of being there preaching and Chanda talking to him about what it means to be a servant. And so they're talking and Chanda says to Joe, he says, hey, would you open your Bible and read 2 Corinthians 4, 5? And so Joe begins to read it and it says, um, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And Chanda stopped him and said, Joe, Joe, do you preach Christ? And he says, yes, Chanda, I think I do. I think I preach Christ. And then Chanda said, well, read the rest of the verse, Joe. 
And the rest of the verse says, and we preach ourselves as servants of Christ for Jesus' sake. And Chanda says, Joe, do you preach yourself as a servant? And he said, no, Chanda, I don't think I do. And then Chanda said these words. Joe, I think you're right. No one in America wants to be a servant. You all want to be leaders. You especially don't want to be a servant of a people like those who are in the church at Corinth. Sexually immoral bickerers who receive the gift of tongues and then defile the Lord's Supper by getting drunk with wine. They are the type of people that you would feel called away from. Yet Paul preached himself as a servant to this church. And then he said this, Let me tell you a secret, Joe. Go to the back of the line. You won't find many Christians in that position. They're usually at the front of the line trying to lead it. But you will find Christ there, and you will find people of little reputation. Find the back of your culture's line and go there. And I think Chanda's call to go to the back of your culture's line is the very thing that Jesus is talking about in this text. Right? What does he say? He says, don't dominate, don't, don't lead the way that the Gentile leaders do. Instead, take the posture of a servant. In order to be first, you must be the slave of all. Jesus is saying, go to the back of your culture's line because that's where you'll meet Jesus. So what does this look like? What does this look like for us at Wake? Well, what is the thing that you have that is most scarce? What is the resource that you have that's most scarce? Time. Time is very scarce, but there's actually something that you have that's even more scarce than time, and that's your status. Status is your place in line, right? Only one person can be first in line. Status is your place in line. And to follow Jesus looks like giving up your place in line, giving up your status, because he gave up his status for you. So questions to ask yourself is, who do you neglect because they're behind you in the status line? In your classes, socially, here in RUF? Who do you avoid because to spend time with them would negatively affect your status? Who do, what, what do you avoid doing because it's beneath you? Following Jesus, I think, looks like doing these things. It looks like giving up your time to help a classmate with their homework or giving up your status to have lunch with someone who's lonely, going to the back of the line because that's what Jesus has done for you. Because in the kingdom of God, the way up is actually down and the way to win is by losing. So as we're concluding, um, just want to let Jesus ask you this question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And there's really only two responses that we can give. We can say, give me fame. I'm in the zero-sum game. I want to win. Or give me faith. Because you have the words of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this time tonight and these words from Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would um, search us with them. Um, Lord, help us to see you, Jesus, as the one who laid down your life for us, that you who had all the status, um, you gave it up uh, so that we might have life with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do the same thing. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.